Good morning to you. Good morning to those who are watching from home today. It was uh, good to see some new folks in the last service. It's always good to see you as well here. As we look at God's word, as we worship together, we need community. We need community. Rick Harrison tells the story of his six-year-old son who uh, demand, seemed to demand his attention just when he was most busy around the house. And he says, uh, my standard reply had been, I'm busy right now, go ask your mother. I'm busy right now, go ask your mother. And the disciplinary look often on my son's face as I sent him away convinced me to change my priorities. I resolved to give him my immediate attention whenever he asked. And my resolve was quickly tested. I had just climbed on my ladder to the top of our two-storied house, paintbrush and bucket in hand. And just as I dipped my brush into the paint, I heard this little voice call, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And just when I was about to give him my standard reply of, I'm busy right now, go ask your mother, I was determined to keep my new resolution. And so I immediately laid my paintbrush and bucket aside and, and climbed all the way back down that ladder to the ground and to see what it was he wanted. I got down on, on both knees and I looked him straight in the eye and I asked, well now, what can I do for you, son? And he replied, Daddy, where's mommy? <laughs> you know, so much for resolutions. Something tells me that dad probably went back to his standard answer, go ask your mother. Haven't you noticed how quickly a resolution or new determination is tested? I mean, it's one thing to make up our mind about something. It's another matter completely to see that through. Well, we turn our attention uh, for a second time here to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, as we began a new series last week, then our theme, uh, Being a Bright Spot in a Dark World. And we'll be looking at the rest of chapter 1 this morning as we see Daniel's decision is tested. And so I hope you'll follow along with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. I want to circle back around to verse 8, which we looked at uh, last week. Now, as a reminder here, you will recall that Daniel and his, and his three friends were taken as hostages, along with many others, to a foreign land where they would be taught the ways of the Babylonians. These uh, four teenagers, along with others, were part of a uh, three-year training program so that in the end, they would serve in the king's court. And the king and his officials really set out to change three things. Uh, change their beliefs, change their identity, and change their loyalties. Their beliefs, their identity, and their loyalties. Now, I remind you that Daniel didn't skip his Babylonian literature and language classes. I remind you that he answered to his Babylonian name. But to eat in the Babylonian cafeteria, Daniel drew a line. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> so he doesn't do it. Sorry. It says in verse 8, I want you to see in, your, in, in the Bible now, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel resolved not. 
Literally, it says, he placed on his heart, or we could say he purposed in his heart. He made up his mind. In what area of your life, in what area of your life have you made up your mind that regardless of the consequences, you will not compromise morally, ethically, spiritually? Someone aptly said, if you don't make up your mind, your unmade mind will unmake you. Well, Daniel made up his mind here not to defile himself. And the word defile is a very strong word in the original. It means uh, to pollute or to, to stain with a very ugly blot. And according to the Old Testament, something that is defiled was an abomination to the Lord. It was an atrocity to God. So what was it about the food and the wine that forced Daniel here to make a decision? Now, we talked about this last week, and it is possible, by the way, that Daniel's decision to not compromise was because the meat was food forbidden by the laws of God and not fitting for a Jew. They were unkosher. But I think even more likely and, and, and problematic for Daniel was that the king's food ser was uh, served at the king's table was associated with idol worship. And the wine the, the king drank was first offered in, in, in worship uh, to their false gods. And so to eat of the king's food and, and drink of the king's wine would be to participate in a pagan feast. And it would be to change his loyalty, his allegiance to his God. And Daniel would have nothing to do with it. His mind was made up. Now, it would have been much easier, I suppose, for Daniel just to kind of go along with this and say, say yes. And I can imagine even some of Daniel, you know, some Christians might have even counseled Daniel, come on, Daniel, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. What's done in Babylon stays in Babylon. Chill out, Daniel. It's not a big deal. God understands. After all, Daniel, how do you expect to pass this training, get promoted, and really make a difference if you're going to make this hill to die on? Well, Daniel's life depended on this decision right here. Everything else in the book of Daniel rests on verse 8. The effect of this one de decision is what sets everything else in motion in this book. The effect of this one decision is what sets Daniel apart as one who would be that bright spot in a dark world. And so it would benefit us then to learn how God could use us to become a positive presence in the times in which we live. So principle number one this morning is God is not looking for people of preference, but people of conviction. God is not looking for people of preference, but people of conviction. There was a Sunday school teacher who asked her class of five-year-olds, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? And it was silent for a little bit, and one child finally raised her hand and answered, I don't know, but I think it runs in my family. <laughs> You know what? That's not going to cut it. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? And do those beliefs shape your decisions and form convictions in your life? Listen, a belief is what you hold. A conviction is what holds you. A belief is what you hold. A conviction is what holds you. Are we people of convictions, biblical convictions? 
And frankly, many people today, even in the Christian community, are people of preference, but not people of conviction. I mean, is there something you're doing presently that a year or two years ago you were determined not to do? You said, I'd never do that, and here you are doing it. If there's a belief you hold that can be changed under certain circumstances, that's not a conviction. That's a preference. It's been said this way, a preference is a strong belief, but a belief you will change under the right circumstances. Circumstances such as peer pressure, family conflict, lawsuits, threat of death. A conviction is not something you discover, it's something that you purpose in your heart. And so Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. What now? How will he then handle this predicament? All right, look with me at verse 8 again. I'm going to pick it up from the very beginning, but it's the middle of the verse I want us to, to see. You need to follow along here. You know what that means. You need to follow along, beginning in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, notice how he handles this. Middle of verse 8. And he got in the chief official's face, and he demanded that the, cha- that the king change the rules just for him. It doesn't say that. <laughs> it doesn't say that at all. He doesn't threaten anyone. He doesn't stage a protest. He doesn't blow up any building. He doesn't demand anything. He didn't tell him what he was going to do and not to do, and knew that's just the way it's going to be. No, middle of verse 8. Let's get it right now. Middle of verse 8. He asked, underline, the chief official for permission not to define himself this way. He asked, for permission. He was polite about it. Now, he seems to have already established a good rapport with this official, and God made sure of that as verse 9 tells us that God gave the, the chief official a favorable disposition towards Daniel. Look at verse 9. God had caused, that's God gave, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy toward Daniel. I mean, isn't that great? God predisposed the official to like Daniel. Here's our confidence, church. God works in the hearts of other people, even unbelievers. Proverbs 16, 7 says, as a truism for our lives, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. And I ask, is that what always happens? No. Those martyred for their faith, weren't their lives taken by their enemies? I mean, there are no guarantees in terms of outcome, but when we set out to please the Lord, we can be certain that God is on our side. He will bless that. And we might even discover that those who oppose us, God may work in their hearts to act favorably toward us. Don't underestimate what God can do. Daniel purpose in his heart, verse 8, God moved in verse 9. Because, church, God's controlling everything here. I said last week of the sovereignty of God, that God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. And so when I'm watching the news on Monday morning, God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. And we know God's in it. It has a direct impact on how we're going to respond under pressure. Now the story in Daniel, I believe, turns out completely different if Daniel doesn't handle the situation with grace, wisdom, and tact. 
He took the trouble to live by his convictions by drawing this line, but then approaching the situation with the right attitude. And quite honestly, I think this is where we often blow it and lose our opportunity to influence. Our attitude's not right. And we're screaming at people and being a little nasty. I heard a story of Charles Spurgeon and his pastor friend, Dr. Newman Hall. Newman Hall wrote a book entitled, Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Well, someone else at that same time published an article in which he ridiculed Hall, who took it patiently for a little while, but when the article criticizing Hall's book gained popularity, Hall said, I've had enough, and he sat down and he wrote a letter of protest. I'm going to give this guy a piece of my mind. And he wrote a retaliatory, a counterblast that outdid anything in the article which attacked him. The letter was written, he's fuming, he's ready to mail this thing. But before mailing the letter, however, Hall took it to Spurgeon for his opinion. And Spurgeon read the letter carefully and then handing it back, asserted it was excellent and that the writer of the article deserved it all. But, Spurgeon added, it just lacks one thing. And after a pause, Spurgeon continued, underneath your signature, you ought to include the words, author of, come to Jesus. Author of, come to Jesus, and then, then send it. Well, he couldn't do that. He looked at, the, at Spurgeon, and, 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 and Hall tore the letter to shreds. There's something about remembering whose we are that ought to soften, soften our attitude. There's something about remember we have come to Jesus, that we bear his name, that makes it inappropriate to maintain a fighting spirit. So church, I speak to myself. Before you take that stand, before you make your protest, before you send that letter out or, or email out or send that text, before you post that comment, do me a favor. Check your attitude. Check my attitude. And perhaps sign it, follower of Jesus or representative of Jesus. That probably would slow us down a bit. Paul, in his letter to the church in Colossae, said this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He then adds, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Why? So that you may know how to answer everyone. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, being seasoned with salt is different than being salty, as, you know, uh, it might be used among young people in a more negative way. To be seasoned with salt, as Paul uses it, and as we see in Daniel's life, was to be polite rather than nasty. It's thoughtful, respectful speech that meets people where they're at. And Daniel's handling, Daniel's handling of the situation sets the tone for the rest of the book. If you're obstinate and obnoxious here, it could have ended Daniel's powerful influence as we know it. But he couldn't compromise either. His decision was about to be tested. He said, this is my line. Now what is he, he going to do? Look at verse 10. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king then would have my head because of you. In other words, he's saying, you know, Daniel, I like you. <laughs> I, I, I like you a lot. I mean, I think you're a pretty good guy. I have a special place in my heart for you and your three friends. But Daniel, I'm afraid of the king. I can't go along with this. 
It, it would be my head when the king learns that I did not insist on your eating his food and drinking his wine. Daniel gets turned down. Now look what he does next. Daniel says, you know what? I tried. I tried. I gave it my best shot. There's nothing else I can do here. So come on, guys. We've got to eat from the king's table. No, that isn't what happened. His conviction holds him. Verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and he says, please test your servants for 10 days. He's saying to this steward, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. You see, Daniel doesn't give up here. This isn't just a preference. It isn't just a belief he had. It was a conviction that held him. He looks for another way. He goes through the proper channels, and he speaks with a guard, the steward here, who was in charge of Daniel and his three friends. You see, Daniel understood what the king really wanted. He realized that his actions would affect those in charge of him, so he lives out his convictions while remaining in submission to those in authority. And so in wisdom, Daniel approaches his immediate superior, and he offers a creative solution. Verse 12. He says, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Test this for 10 days. In other words, he's saying here, and if you like what you see, you keep your job and your head, and I keep a clear conscience before God. It, we would call this a win-win. Daniel knew that, that all the king was really after was bottom line. If Daniel and his friends were in good shape physically, and mentally, after the testing period, then the king was going to be happy. And so Daniel proposes a creative solution with the test. This guard, this steward, apparently was less threatened by the king, the chief official, so he's willing to grant Daniel's request, it tells us in verse 14. Now Daniel's putting his neck on the line. Pretend you don't know the rest of the story. He's putting his neck on the line here. This is going to go very well, or it's going to go very badly. He doesn't know. Principle number two. God is not looking for us to control the outcome, but to do what is right and leave the results with him. God is not looking for us to try and control the outcome, but to do what is right and leave the results with him. Look with me at verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. You see, they didn't suffer one bit from the substitutions. On the contrary, they benefited. Verse 16. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Mom was right. Eat your vegetables. That's not the moral of the story, by the way. I believe it was their healthy fear of God over their diet that brought the Lord's favor on them. Daniel had convictions and, 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 and he took the trouble to live by them. He had the right attitude. He approached the situation with tact, wisdom, and common sense. And by offering a creative solution, he provided an opportunity for God to work. It was a test of 10 days, a 10-day period. Now, 10 days isn't a lot of time. I can safely say if that I started eating right and exercising as I should and stayed away from junk food, I mean, miracles never cease, that after 10 days, you aren't going to even notice. I doubt that after 10 days, you'd come up to me and say, Pastor, you're looking great. What have you been doing to get in such good shape? All right, so what I believe we see in verse 15 is divine intervention. 
Now, that's just me filling in the white spaces. It doesn't say that there was direct intervention that brought such positive results. So I may not have that right. Explore it yourself. But God's fingerprints are all over this. Down in verse 17, it tells us that not only did they look better and were healthier, but that to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And then an added blessing to Daniel was that he would understand dreams and visions of all kinds. And we're going to see later on how God uses Daniel in that way. God was in this. Now, just so that there isn't any misunderstanding here. This does not suggest, by this little test here, that we come up with all these crazy ideas of what we want God to do and then presume on him to deliver. It doesn't, it's not talking about that. I mean, I have seen this. I have seen pastors have bullied God's people with the words, God told me. In order to what? Build their own versions of the Tower of Babel and to feed their own egos. I have seen among Christians many abuses of stepping out in faith and say, oh, this is what God told me to do. I'm supposed to marry this person. I'm supposed to go to this school. I'm supposed to buy this car. Yes, he, said, he told me this. And all it's brought, all it's resulted in disillusionment, disappointment with God, and confusion. What is emphasized here is not putting God to the test. It's about doing what is right and leaving the results with God. I mean, I can't totally dismiss the faith of these four teenagers, but their step of faith was back in verse 8 and their decision to do what is right. And from that point on, they really didn't know how this was going to turn out. They didn't. We know because we read the story. Most of us, they did not know. But that wasn't their problem. You see, God isn't looking for us to try and control the outcome. You don't have to play politics to get ahead. You don't have to manipulate the process to get a good outcome. You don't have to tear others down in order to make yourself look better. Do what is right and then let God work out his desired end. Trust him to come through. For he always does. It just may not be the way we want. All right. In what area of your life presently has your focus been more on trying to control outcomes than simply doing what is right? Where do you need, where do I need a fresh determination to follow through on a decision that we know is right, even though it is incredibly hard? There is, a, in West Point, a prayer known as the cadet prayer. Now, I don't know if they still say this prayer. You can research it and email me later and say they don't do that anymore. That, that's fine. It's a great prayer, and I, I just wanted to share this prayer with you. Because at one time, one time anyway, it was repeated every Sunday in chapel service, services by the cadets at West Point. I don't know if you heard it, but this is what it says. Make us choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. Never to be contented with half-truth when whole truth can be won. Endow us with courage that is born of loyalty to all, that is noble and worthy, that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice and knows no fear when right and truth are in jeopardy. Amen. See, God is not looking for us to try and control the outcome. Do what is right, even if it's hard. And leave the results with him. 
Principle number three. God is not looking for influential people he can make faithful. He's looking for faithful people who will be influential. God's not looking for influential people he can make faithful. He's looking for faithful people he can make influential. All right, down in verse uh, 18. It says, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, which means the end of the three years of training, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you've ever had to take an oral exam before a teacher or a professor, and I did back in Bible college, then you can appreciate on some level what's going on here in verse 19. The king talked with him. There's an oral exam going. Yeah, I mean, he's grilling him. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service. They're now going to hang out with the king. And when the king needed some advice, these guys would be brought in to help him. Verse 20. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. They were not only better than the others, they were ten times better. Ten times better. How well did you do on your SATs? Not bad. I did ten times better. How much do you have? That's not bad. I have ten times more than that. Ten times. Now, I don't think we should make too much of this ten times better, other than it is an indication of God's blessing, their faithfulness. Why were they ten times better than the best? Because they were naturally gifted? Because they had uh, uh, good study habits? Because they had charisma? Because they knew how to suck up to the king and his officials? No, no, those weren't the reasons They had something going for them which was far better than any diet program or having it in with the king, and that was God. Because God's hand was in it. He gave them wisdom. He gave them strength. He gave them what they needed in order to be of greatest influence for him. See, if you want to be where God wants you to be, don't compromise. Live by your biblical convictions. Let God take care of the rest and lift you up. He's just looking for faithfulness. God honored their uncompromising commitment. He always does. But Daniel was three years later. It may take that long before we see the effects of our uncompromising stand. You know what? It may take longer. You know what? In some cases, on this side of heaven, we may not even see it. But God is not looking for influential people that he can make faithful, but faithful people that he can make influential. And we tend to think that if some rock star or some athlete or some Hollywood celebrity or wealthy person would just come to Christ, how influential they would be. Now, perhaps there's some truth to that. Much is given, much is required is true. But this passage here teaches us the opposite. God is not looking for influential people he can make faithful. God is looking for men and women, young and old, who will say, here I am. I have made up my mind. I will live for you. Those are the ones God can use for greater influence. And out of the many young people who enter the King's three-year training program, four teenagers are going to be used by God for greater influence. And so often... We are just going after influential people, those that can make a big splash, those who have big personalities. We hold them up. Those are the ones we want to follow. I don't see it here. It 
all began with one decision. They chose to go with their convictions rather than their preferences of convenience, not knowing how God was going to use them. Do what is right. Let's see what God does with that. Now, what we're going to see going forward in the book of Daniel is the way God, ways that God uses Daniel and his three friends in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. Because when the king needed advice, you'd gather these wise men around him, and Daniel's influence would be to that king. But you know what? It would go beyond this one king. Look at verse 21. It tells us, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, we may think this is a rather incidental statement, but it's not. What it's saying here is from the time Daniel made this one decision in verse 8 to the time of Cyrus was king, by the way, he would be the catalyst for the captives returning to Jerusalem. From the time of this one decision to Cyrus being king meant that Daniel's influence passed through four kings. That's pretty significant. Let's not miss uh, that behind the scenes of a 70-year captivity that was a very dark, uh, terrible time for the people of God is this domino effect of one decision. The powerful influence of one life lived sold out for God. But you know, the book of Daniel is more than a story of a great man. It's of a great God who multiplies our efforts of faithfulness and obedience. I received this text from a guy this past week, it was someone that I had coached in basketball 20 plus years ago. He now coaches a college Division I men's basketball team. This, this, is, this is what he, I won't say all of it, but let me give you some of what he wrote. He texted me this. He says, your impact as a volunteer basketball coach shaped my life in ways you probably never imagined. Your impact in my life has led to more young men becoming coaches. More than 20 people that I have coached or worked with or networked with are now coaches. They have coached countless young people. Your reach is way bigger than your congregation, he said. He said, thanks for your grace and patience as a coach, pastor, and friend. He calls me his life coach, which I think I don't really deserve that statement. But who knew? that my one decision many years ago to take on coaching would have such an effect. Who knew? Now, I share that, not to impress you with me, but with what God can do with our ordinary faithfulness. That felt very ordinary to me. It is meant to emphasize the way God multiplies our influence. It's meant to impress you with what God with God and what he wants to do through you. Yes, ordinary you, ordinary me. Makes me think of the well-known words by D.L. Moody. It says, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And by God's help, I aim to be that man. You know, I think many people around us are looking for Christians who are serious about their faith who really live out what they believe with passion and conviction. Will you be that person? The Christian scholar Larry Taunton, a few years ago, he launched a nationwide campaign to interview college students who belong to atheistic college campus groups. After receiving a flood of inquiries, Larry and his team heard one consistent theme from these young unbelievers. 
This is what they heard. That they often expected but didn't find more spiritual depth from their Christian friends and neighbors. Larry goes on to say, some of these young atheists had gone to church hoping to find answers to tough questions about faith. Others hoped to find answers to questions of personal significance, purpose, and ethics. Serious-minded, they often concluded that church services were largely shallow, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. As Ben, an engineer major at the University of Texas, so bluntly put it, he said, I really started to get bored with church. Now, in contrast, these young atheists expressed their respect for those uh, ministers who took the Bible seriously. Larry goes on, he says, without fail, our former church attending students expressed positive feelings for those Christians, now get this, who unashamedly embraced biblical teaching. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us, I really can't consider a Christian a good moral person if he isn't trying to convert me. He goes on, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life and you'd want to change the lives of others. And he says, I haven't seen too much of that. That got me. Because there's at least a thread of truth in that. See, many are looking for Christians who will not water down their faith, but live like they really believed it. They're looking for people with a depth of conviction that shares its faith, assuming it is done in an appropriate way. Will you be that person? Will I be that person? Let's pray. Lord, we don't have any idea, really, of what one act of ordinary faithfulness and obedience is going to have on the people closest to me and us and even beyond that as it ripples out. So God, help us to be people who are committed to being faithful, obedient, those with convictions who live our lives out because we really believe in what we read and what we've seen in our lives and that others would see that too in us. So help us, God. Help us to be faithful. May you use us. May you use us to influence many others, not only in our generation, but in generations to come, I pray in Jesus' name.